Today we're going we're gonna to start this introduction to, um, to the life of Samuel. Uh, our pattern has been to go back and forth between New Testament, which we were in the book of James back in the spring, and now we're going to go back to the Old Testament. And uh, I was looking for another opportunity to do uh, Old Testament narrative, if you will. And um, it occurred to me that there's some things going on in the life of Samuel that apply right here to us. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, uh, we need um, our ears opened, our hearts opened. Um, Words are really cheap. Um, Information doesn't account for much. What we want, Lord, is for you to touch our hearts and tell us, ooh, pay attention to that. Or here's what to do. Or just listen. Lord, we we would have you instruct us and uh, tell us what to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, family. Um, in the Old Testament, the ninth, ninth, tenth books in the Old Testament are First uh, Samuel and Second Samuel. They follow uh, the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. But those, um, the, those three, the, the, the book of Judges and the book of Ruth and the start of First Samuel are all in the time of the Judges. Um, and the, the book of Judges is, uh, is something we're not going to study uh, in a mixed audience with, with children. <laughs> uh, in, the, in, the Hebrew, um, in the Hebrew scriptures, 1 and 2 Samuel are one text. They don't split them. They just put them together. But in, in 290 BC, the Hebrew texts were translated into Greek, and it's called the Septuagint. And those scholars were the ones who split the book. And they sort of, they didn't pick a random point. They picked a pretty exact point to go between First and Second Samuel. Because Second Samuel deals almost entirely with David. And First Samuel is a, is a, is a mix. So uh, the man Samuel could not have written both First and Second Samuel because he dies before the end of First Samuel. Now, evidence shows that Samuel and King David and Nathan the prophet and Gad the prophet, they all wrote about the events of, that happened in First and Second Samuel. They all have some input. And it's, um, um, it's, it's probable that Samuel himself penned chapters like 1 to 24 or something like that and passed it on. Um, and there's speculation that Isaiah... Hundreds of years later, Isaiah may have been the one to compile all these manuscripts, all these witnesses of what took place during the period of time at the end of the Judges and just before the monarchy, before Saul is crowned king. Uh, We're introduced to Samuel during the the time of the end of the Judges. That period lasted 300 to 400 years after, after the death of Joshua. Now, Joshua was the general... Who, who led the Canaanite, excuse me, the Israelite armies into battles against the Canaanites. And when they fought together and they trusted the Lord, they, they wiped away the enemy. But Joshua didn't live long. You know, there were, there were battles and there was a distribution of the lands. If you take a peek up at the, at the screen, you'll see what, what the... This is uh, where the... The tribes were located across Israel, you know, the Palestine, at the time of Samuel. 
And that map will change radically when it gets to, to the time of David. Nevertheless, for this period of time, for about 110, 115 years, that's what it looks like. Okay, and you've got all 11 tribes marked up there. Because at the end of the Canaanite Wars, 11 tribes were given grants of land, except for one tribe. Which one? Levi. Okay, and Levi got no land, but Levi and the, and the descendants of Aaron, the priests and the Levites, were going to be supported by the tithes and the offerings that flowed into the tabernacle in Shiloh, and subsequently later into, the, into Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. <clears throat> now, um, the tribes that are here, they, they all share the land and its resources, um, but there's no central government. And the, the central government would have uh, passed some laws to say, no, we're not going to do this. Uh, and we're, he would blow the horn and we'd all go to war together uh, for protection and for, for wisdom, things like that. They didn't do that. These tribes ended up warring against each other. They, they messed with each other bad. All I have to do is read the book of Judges and you realize, oh, these are, these are relatives fighting each other. Okay. So as long as Joshua led the, the armies... And Israel came behind him. They fought and they won the battles. Then Joshua dies. And subsequently, when they had to go to war against um, Philistia, for example, on the coast, or the other Canaanite strongholds, they did it very ineffectively. And so the book of Judges has many references to uh, tribes like Asher. There's like seven different battles that Asher, as a tribe, went into to try and and take Sidon, and try and take this village, and try and take that village, and take this harbor, and they lost every single one of them because they tried to do it alone. There wasn't any consensus of, we need to go and help Asher. Okay? The other thing that happened here was uh, Joshua dies, and the children of Israel were content to live with the fact that they had not conquered the Canaanite high places, the citadels like Jerusalem, you know, the, the Jebusite stronghold that was there. And that was waiting for David. That's a, later in the story, okay? But uh, the, the walled cities that the Canaanites held were out in the plains, and the Israelites could not conquer them. They took down Jericho, and they took down some others, but the big ones, the really big ones. Uh, I've been in, up, in, up in Galilee toward upper, uh, up, uh, the upper Jordan River, and there's a... Um, a dig, a site, if you will, an archaeological site called Beit Shan, okay, which has existed at that time. It was on a trade route, and what set that city apart was they didn't have to wall the city. It was a gigantic mound of layers and layers and layers of thousands of years of civilizations that had just piled itself on top of each other. But to fight that particular city, you had to run uphill. didn't work. You know, it's really easy to fight downhill. It's very difficult to fight uphill. And so if you want to look at that map as a face, by the time that, that Joshua dies, there's still a, like a real bad case of acne. There's all these pimples, all these sores and, marked all over that map, all the hot spots that Israel didn't control. And so they lived with it. They just decided, well, can't take it, so it's, they're our neighbors and we'll trade with them. And the problem was they began to be profoundly affected by the, Israel, uh, the Canaanite culture and religions. 
And that's the story of the book of Judges. Nine times in that three, three to four hundred years, nine times Israel turned away from the Lord God. Nine times they just went, huh, boy, that looks good over there. See you, Lord. Nine times they turned their back on him and to embrace the subtle and the vile stuff that marks the Canaanite culture and religion. Seven times Israel was held captive by tribal groups or nations that came in and just squashed them. And they had to serve as, as you know, they were futile. They were, you know, you know they had to pay tribute, etc. Five times Israel had to go to war just to survive. The Lord God called out and set up 14 judges to help lead the people back to him. And then he would, underneath those judges, he would get them in order and they would go out and fight. Um, but as you recall, if you've read through the book of Judges, it's not filled with role models. The book of Judges is not something you read to your kids at night. All right? Um, here's the rise of the anti-hero. Okay, the one who starts out and argues, the one who starts out and complains, the one who stumbles and, okay, all right, I'll do it, and goes out and wins a battle, but ends life badly. I remember being given comic books, colored comic books. We would call them graphic novels today, sort of, okay? Colored comic books published by the David C. Cook Publishing House when I was like six years old. That's a long time ago. Um, and uh, for six, seven, you know, I was in second grade, third grade, fourth grade, and I would get these colored coloring books of, uh, that had tales of Paul's journeys. But I remember there was, there was at least three or four of them that came on the judges, and there was Samson, and there was um, Deborah, and there was Gideon, and, you know, it made the judges be larger than life. They just didn't tell the whole story, Okay. So as we come to study the life of Samuel, we find that he is placed at the end of the period of the judges and before the period of the monarchs in a society that's torn with fear, sorrow, lying, deception, heartache, war, betrayal, deviant sex, and and worse, murder, slaughter, and destruction. And that all happens between the tribes of Israel. It isn't just, you don't just point the finger at the enemies that come over the hill. This was going on inside and between the tribes. <clears throat> this sounds like a great series of scripts that could be written for a Quentin Tarantino series or Ridley Scott, you know, some of those movies, you know, where they're, they load up those movies with all those characteristics right there. So you don't have to read the book of Samuel. You can go to the movie theater and get just appalled just as easily. <clears throat> But it's people who read the Old Testament and say, ah, you know, what is this doing? And, you know, how can God allow this? And, you know, God looks the other way and this happens. And, you know, people are dead and dying. And, oh. Now, what I want you to do here is uh, learn again to use the zoom out tool. Okay. We did that when we were studying the, the life of, of uh, jo- Joshua. No, Jacob. One of those J words. Jacob. Okay. And, and for those who haven't done this, it's like having a, a, one of those extendable, long extendable lenses that when you pull it all the way back, you end up with a wide angle. When you push it all the way out, you get telepho- uh, the telephoto lens. But what we want is a God's eye view. We want to go up with this. We want to be so that you can see what is God doing in this mess of the, of the book of Judges. And he's preparing to place Samuel into that. Now, 
during that same period of time, during the period of the judges, uh, two years ago, about this time, we were studying the book of Ruth. And um, God's name is never mentioned in the book of Ruth. But he is very present because he sets out to preserve uh, uh, the seed that is passing through a line that will lead to King David and ultimately to Messiah. So Samuel, in the midst of this great darkness, uh, you know, I think Samuel may have actually written the book of Judges, but nobody knows that one either. Okay, Samuel may have written this down, this last line in the book of Judges, and it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound Californian? We're going that direction, okay? That's a a hint, all right? Uh, 20th century man and culture also has had its prophetic voices in it. And I'm sure you can complete the quote here. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr was a, a German theologian. And he said, modern man judges itself, judges himself. And, can you finish the quote? Finds himself good. Okay, let's zoom back in. Okay. Today we're going to start this series on the life of Samuel. And what I want us to do is, is begin to open our eyes, if you will, um, to figure out how much of this is, is great Bible history, but actually there's, there's profound lessons for living in the midst of a similar miasma, a similar fog of, of things in the Bay Area here in California. So the, the obvious question is, what is it that God might do with us, in us, and through us, as he did in the days of Samuel? So when we realize we live in a life that's surrounded uh, by people who are trapped in greed. The Jan, did, uh, Jan asked me the other day, we were driving down Montgomery, downtown San Francisco, financial district, you know, towering this and that. And she says, what, what, you know, what keeps people here? Why do they want to be here? And I said, greed and pride and lust and self-pleasing and some are... Uh, have to do with addictions. Now, you can, you can expand that list. You know, if you know San Francisco really well, you might go, oh, they love the art museum. <laughs> you, know, or they, you know, there's other reasons why people live in cities. Okay, but there, there's some hard-edged facts about big city living in San Francisco is, our, is, is the 800-pound gorilla in our neighborhood. So being a follower of Jesus in California sort of ended up putting a bullseye on our backs. You know, if you want to post your stuff up on Facebook, chances are it will get taken down. Or there'll be a record kept of you so that when you go to submit your resume and they discover you're one of those Christians, being hired is an impossibility at that point. Now, some of this has come upon us um, because we've increasingly withdrawn from politics and the marketplace discussions and options about schools and things like that, it's just been a whole lot easier for Christians to not stay in your face over moral issues and principles from the Constitution. We've, we've really backed up on it. And uh, I would say there's a miasma of feel-good options that, are, that apply to those around us and sometimes to us as well. And they sound something simple like, well, I've earned this. I deserve this. I need this. I want this. I'm going to get it at all costs. 
So in my neighborhood, there's a century plus long track record of, of people who think and live by the, by the pattern that says, you don't see what I'm doing and you don't really care. And that has let them off the hook to live radically immoral lives in some cases. Um, the line that goes something like this might have happened in, a, in, in Israelite households when they lived in the, in the, you know, on this map. And the line might have been something like, well, everyone else is doing it. And so if that comes out of your mouth, that's essentially self-justification. That just says, well, I suppose I could do that too for a while and just let's see what that tastes like. Let's, let's go touch that. Okay? So family, what I, what I want us to be aware of is that I think... Uh, if you don't think about this, you end up with both feet on slippery slopes. You end up kind of going with the flow of culture, and it is hardening. It is becoming more and more difficult to be outspoken in the state of California, publicly, privately, in, you know, online, etc. And uh, if we take further steps back, uh, there's a slope to that, and it's slick. Um, so I think what I want to do is coin a term. Uh, it's called New Canaan. Okay? It's not old Canaan, because old Canaan was diverse. There were tribes, okay? There's no central government, no powerful central government. We live with a very powerful combination of federal and state governments that have profound control over things like what a woman can or cannot do with her own body, which can and does result in child sacrifice, otherwise called abortion. And I'm going to prompt you a little bit. We're going to start into a little bit of a call and response question and answer thing here, a little bit. Um, San Francisco City is now the number one city in the whole United States with the highest per capita intake of alcohol. That has to have an impact when you live in proximity to it, when you commute into it, when you pass through it. Okay? Okay. Not even close. Okay? All right, something else. San Francisco Bay is known globally as a hotspot for human trafficking. You know, we, you know people uh, you know, go to Southeast Asia for tourist, you know, sexual tourism, if you will. People come to the San Francisco Bay Area for that too. All right? Shakespeare would call... Um, some of the headlines that we see every day on Yahoo and other news feeds, okay? You kind of go through and you go, ooh, yeah, ah, ah, murder most foul, okay? Where people no longer value human life and they would just as soon take yours. 50 years ago, okay? You know, it was when we started that uh, powerful central government espoused and protected a series of clinics where women can, can uh, deal with an unwanted pregnancy. Okay, that's millions upon millions and millions of, of babies. So uh, are there other things that come to mind? I've got three or four other things here on here, but I don't want to just run my list. Are there other things that you might see rising in New Canaan or in a, in a fog of you know, spiritual pushback against those who would stand and say, Jesus is my Lord, I plan to go to heaven real soon. 
in, in, you know, in, any, in any stretch of the imagination on time. And I'm going to raise my children with biblical morals. Okay? So what pushes on us? What else is out there that's just like, oh, what do we do with that? It's called demonization. Okay.
let me just touch on the last three things I have on my list here. Last week, um, officials in the state of California discovered that a whole town in Central Valley had been taken over by the MS-13 gang out of, out of uh, El Salvador. Uh, they are known as um, demonic and bloody. Uh, and uh, they had set up uh, headquarters to run a crime organization in California out of the town called Mendota, southern San Joaquin Valley. They just took over the town. And then, um, lately, um, I think more, I'm more conscious of it this year than maybe previously because a lot of people were outed, but there's just been a, a consistent drumbeat of moral failure. Moral failure by at, le- at the leadership level in the Congress and the Senate, you know, judiciary, wherever it is, um, you know, some, someone will step forward and say, I was abused. Someone will step forward and say, I was used, etc. cetera. Uh, and we go, hmm, and now that no longer has, it almost has no more impact because it's become a daily, not nearly a daily thing. It's like, oh, there it is again, oh, there it is again. But, you know, the collapse of, of moral integrity in, at the leadership level where people we sort of expect to lead us and help, tr- uh, help uh, govern us, help in the courts and things like that, and yet they failed and failed and failed at, the, at basic moral levels. Lastly, you know, there's a couple of hundred thousand people a year now that are dying from an opiate addiction that uh, inadvertently was probably fostered on the population, population by the medical practitioners who said... Oh, well, we can, we can deal with this pain. We can make pain go away. And then they turn people into self-anesthesiologists. They can make, them, make the pain go away for themselves. But they can't do it legally. They have to do it illegally. And, and the whole opiate drug thing has exploded across the United States, but it's killing people at a phenomenal rate. Now, all these things that we've talked about, the motivations and experiences and, and some... Wow, how does that happen in southern San Joaquin Valley? And, you know, that bears on what I would call New Canaan <laughs> in some measure. But I, that's because they don't have a better name for it. I just think that there's a rise that we need to be aware of, of uh, a significant moral tilt away from, further moral tilt away from the gospel. And that sets us wider and wider apart from the rest of the culture. Second, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends that don't know Jesus are all pursuing a lost lifestyle. It may be, in appearance, it may look happy, it may look profit, you know, uh, affluent, it may look comfortable. You know, they're able to travel here and travel there. It's a lost lifestyle. And the result is death. So we're the ones who are called to pray for them. They're not praying for themselves right now. I pray for those days when they cry out. I pray for those days when they, when they would say, oh God, help me. But that's not yet. So we're the ones who are called to pray for them. And, and we're the ones that have to invite Holy Spirit into conversations and gestures that we have with them and on their behalf of how we care for them, how we respond when they say something. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm, I was sitting yesterday in a, a congregation of about five, 600 people, and a uh, young woman stood up and talked about her dad, and uh, it, she was articulate, 
Um, and she, she had about a 10-minute thing she did. And three times in the middle of her, her presentation about her, the sweet memories of her dad, she happened to mention her wife. And nobody moved. Nobody flinched. Nobody went, what? Um, and granted, when you're in a large crowd, sometimes the best thing to do is just to kind of go, I'll react to that later. <laughs> but um, I happened, Jan and I happened to be, have been part of that particular church for 19 years. What happened yesterday was inconceivable. But there it is. So, you know, in that kind of situation, I kind of go, oh, Lord, I, there's people I need to pray for. There's people I need to come under and surround. There's people I, you know, that we walked with 30 years ago who may have been hit with a similar blow to their families. So we're, we're the ones who need to hear from heaven for, on, on behalf of the lost, on behalf of those that are stuck in the miasma of this you know, they may think of themselves as tribal. They may think of themselves as, as uh, oh, I, because I live in this certain neighborhood, I have an elevated view of myself and of life. Still filled with sin. Still filled with malpractice. Still filled with wicked things going on behind closed doors. So uh, we're the ones who are, are to ask for divine appointments with those people. Some of us are, in a sense, almost tradespeople. Indy, you go in and out of businesses. You, go in, you, know, you have opportunities with suppliers and with clients. You know, John, you've got families you're tutoring and tutoring with, and you're in the homes. Uh, <clears throat> my neighborhood's tough. A lot of us live up long driveways, and they have big dogs. You know, so, <laughs> you know nevertheless, I'm, you know, I, I was walking up and down my, my, my street, you know, and, and one of the folks up the street, has embraced a particularly virulent and darkened form of Buddhism. And there's Buddhist prayer flags, Tibetan prayer flags draped everywhere over the front of that property. In fact, the name of the property reflects that. And I'm going, oh, I haven't been praying. But I am now. So there are other powerful characters that we're going to come to in 1 Samuel. You'll, you'll run across Saul as he is uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, and he's head and shoulders taller than everybody else in the land, and he becomes king and fails at that. You'll run into David as the shepherd who's been exiled from the family, and then Samuel has to go find him and get him there for God's purpose. You'll run into Saul, uh, to um, Jonathan, who's the, the, one of the sons of King Saul. He's a prince in the household of princes, there are many other sons of King Saul. Yeah, their, their, their story is for later. We're, we're not going to go chase those stories. What we wanted to focus on is how did Samuel deal with the culture that he was in and to prepare the way so that he could hear the voice of God and do what God told him to do. And I think that's us as well. So um, reach across an aisle, take somebody's hand. Uh, Lord Jesus, we're... We are um, we're aware of the pushback on us in this culture. I'm sure Samuel was aware of the pushback in his culture. Um, so we ask, Lord, that the lessons that are there for us from this character, um, Lord, he, uh, he was a prophet, a priest, a king, 
I, I, excuse me, he was a kingmaker and he was a judge. Um, an amazing combination of, of giftings. And some of those giftings are scattered through our midst. And so we ask, Lord, that you'd cause that kind of coming together for wisdom and discernment for how we live now, how we should live. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.